I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to episode 63 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And in this episode, I'm joined by broadcaster and journalist John Wilson. Now, you're going to love this. Honestly, it's amazing to hear so many passionate stories of his love of the jam. It's a proper outpouring of emotions, of memories, and proper envy-inducing tales from a guy who's a master storyteller, as far as I'm concerned. One of the regular presenters of Front Row, he's interviewed everybody from Ray Davis to Bowie to McCartney, Elton John, Kate Bush, and interviewed Paul Weller on many occasions on that Radio 4 show too. In 2007, he worked with Paul to create the book Suburban 100, and Mr. Weller guested on his Radio 4 music programme Master Tapes. In fact, Paul's also been a guest more recently on John's These Three Songs podcast, and John returned the favour by interviewing him for the Making of True Meanings documentary. We're going to dig into all this stuff on the podcast. You're in for a real treat. My guest this week, John Wilson, thanks for joining me. Pleasure, Dan. It's good to be here. I love talking about Paul Weller with people who have met Paul Weller, who have interviewed Paul Weller, because uh, we'll get into this with the podcast, because this is the ultimate aim of the podcast, is to be able to meet Paul, have a conversation, do the interview that I never managed. So all the way through here, I'm going to be picking up tips from you. You realise that? Right. (laughs) I could just call him now. Do you want want to just just kind of, you know, oh no, it ruins the whole point of the podcast, doesn't it? Is he on your phone? (laughs) What's he in there as? Probably some secret code. I don't know. Uh, PW, I think. PW. Oh, nice. Cool. We have to kick off understanding when it was that you first fell in love with the music of Paul Weller. And I know for a fact it was the jam. And am I right yeah. in thinking it's your Aunt Liz that we have to thank? <laughs> wow, you've done your research, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> She'll be really impressed by that. Yeah, my Aunt Liz, my my mum's sister, who was quite a bit younger than my mum, but only a few years older than me. So I was at school, Liz went to university, and I remember she just had great taste. But I think when she... Well, actually, do you know what? Growing up, I remember on her bedroom wall, it was all Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, and 
there was, I remember there was a picture of Roy Harper because we used to go and stay. She lived in Derbyshire in a small village in Derbyshire and she had these sort of really exotic posters of bands I'd never heard of meant nothing to me. So obviously that was her taste growing up. And then she went to university and everything changed, I guess. So she would have gone, you know, late seventies, 78, something like that. And I just. At the same time, I guess I was discovering or hearing change on the radio and there were things that were sort of catching my ear. I remember hearing, I think Strange Town was the first thing that really got me, maybe Tube Station, I can't remember. But at around the same sort of time, Liz gave me a cassette of two cassettes, you know, C90s. It had In the City, This is the Modern World and... I'm not sure she had all mod. Yeah, I think she had all mod cons and the first Clash album. That's right. There was Yeah, so there was a kind of, so it was a Clash in the Jam and I was already sort of really digging Blondie in particular. And so things were changing, but yeah, Liz kind of led me to the jam properly. Yeah. <laughs> it was just, it just made sense. It just made sense. Totally. There was something very exotic and otherworldly about Blondie. And I was obviously totally in love with Debbie Harry. I mean, it was weird actually the other day, ABBA announced they were reforming as avatars or avatars or whatever they want to call it. And, um, and it made me think about how, and I, I did a couple of things on the radio talking about my thoughts on ABBA because I did love ABBA as a kid, absolutely loved them. And it just made me think, yeah, I saw ABBA. They were the first band I saw. And I was thinking back to when that was. And I realized I worked out it was Wembley. There was a series of shows. This is about a week of shows, I think, or a couple of weeks of shows at Wembley in 79. And I looked up the date and it was November 79. And I realized it was the end of 79. So two weeks later, I saw the jam for the first time. So that was a kind of a real pivotal moment. It was the sort of letting go of my childhood in a way, you know, the music that I'd kind of the pop and it was moving into something different. And I remember going to see ABBA with my, it was like a family outing. They'd got tickets. My mum and dad had got tickets. I think the whole family went. It was amazing. And I was slightly, by that time, I was already into the jam and the clash. And I remember being a stroppy, I don't know, what was I, 13 or something, but I had a big a jam badge and a clash badge on a red V-neck jumper, uh, which I wore uh, to this ABBA gig thinking, <laughs> I'm, I'm far too cool for this. And of course, I did love ABBA still. I mean, it was just amazing. It was an amazing gig. But then it would have been two weeks later. I mean, I've never thought about it like that, actually, until I was uh, talking about ABBA on the radio the other week about how close that was. And I, I'd never really associated the two gigs. You know, they were two very different times in my life in a way. But then I realized they were two weeks apart because it was the rainbow shows I saw at the, the jam, as any jam fan knows, on that setting sun's tour. It was a it was recorded for Radio One's in concert. So I remember it was the, I would say, third or fourth of December. I remember it was the first few days of December, 4th of December, I'd say, 1979. And I'd never heard anything like it. I remember just being up in the gods and they came on and went into girl on the phone. <laughs> and I was just, what the hell is that noise? I mean, it's had, it's had nothing like the record, you know, it had, it, it didn't have those lovely sort of chiming guitars and the harmonies. It was just this wall of noise. I'd never heard anything like it. And it was for an hour and a half. It was utter mayhem and joyous. And then, you know, that was it. I didn't look back. And there was a few, <laughs> there was a, there was a few gigs at the rainbow like that, that I saw that, you know, still to this day, I think are some of the greatest things I've ever seen, <laughs> you know. Polar opposites from that two weeks before ever. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I can't remember too much about it. You know, I remember being, we had tickets at the sort of at the side of the stage. I remember looking across at ABBA and I remember it was very slick and probably sounded exactly like the record. And I think that's probably part of why it was a shock when I saw the jam. I sort of expected them to sound, because the thing is at the time, I'd never seen the jam live on television even. You know, I'd seen, maybe by that time I'd have seen the video for, um, 
you know, strange town. And when you're young, definitely. So actually, I had seen them, of course, you know what, because they'd been on something else, hadn't they? They'd been on on that program, something else when they debuted Eaton Rifles. They play When You're Young and Eaton Rifles. And it was pretty raw sounding, but it was totally different when you heard them in, in a theatre, yeah. you know, in a room, in a hall. It was just, it was just, and, and the no, it's just the noise and the crowd and the, uh, yeah, it was just absolutely enormous. I mean, seriously, life changing, life changing <laughs> moment. And I love the fact that from that point on, you like you say, you're hooked and you're into it. And we'll talk about the love of the music and the love of the lyrics, but t- tell me more about the live experience. So you saw them quite a few times live from that point on. Yeah. Yeah. Every tour, I guess, uh, that was 79, 80. There was, I remember, I mean, probably I think that my favorite gig, I think, was the one they did, I would say, probably April 1980. And I think it was an anniversary of the Rainbow Theatre. I think it was like, because it had been the Finsbury Park Astoria. It started as a cinema. And then, of course, it was the Finsbury Park Astoria. The Beatles famously used to play their Christmas shows there. Amazing. Um, do you know what? I've got, look. I've got this, this, um, ah. I just, I just suddenly realized this is sitting next to me and should describe to your listeners. So it's an artwork by, um, I can't remember the name of the guy. I think he's called Stuart Free. I'm trying to look at the initials there. And that's, um, a, a painting of the old Rainbow Theatre, which is not far from, it's not far from where I live now, but that place I used to love. It's now been turned into a church. I think it's a, some Brazilian kind of Pentecostal church owned it. It's so sad. It's really sad. But anyway, I remember going to the Rainbow in April 1980. I think it was like the 25th anniversary of the Rainbow, of it being the Rainbow or something like that, or maybe 10th. I don't know. And they, were number one at the time with going underground. It was just huge, huge. And I was down in the stalls, so it was different. And there was something, I mean, it was very uh, tribal, obviously, at the time. It was, you know, the mod thing had really kicked in. I remember actually the first time I went in December 1979, there was an Arsenal game on the same night. So Arsenal Stadium just around Highbury was just around the corner from the Rainbow. And my mum and dad were at the Arsenal game and they were going to hang around afterwards and pick me and my friend Ian Mullins up from the gig. Oh my God, there was this almighty ruck afterwards. There was this huge ruck, all these sort of Arsenal, because there was a big sort of skinhead thing at Arsenal then in the late 70s and all these Arsenal skinheads. And I'm a big Arsenal fan, you know, so I was kind of caught in this, come, came out of the rainbow. <laughs> Which with side all am these I going to pick? <laughs> all these teen, no, I, I mean, I, by that time I was sort of, you know, I knew my tribe by that time. It was the jam, you know, and, um, but there was this huge ruck and all these Arsenal skinheads when the bottles were flying and we remember running underneath the bridge and hiding in this doorway and this sort of riot breaking out. And it was quite exciting. I think about it now, it was really dangerous, but I'm <laughs> running around the corner into um, Plimsoll Road where my mum and dad were waiting. And it was sort of, they were sort of absolutely furious. It was like, well, you know, look at all this violence. And, and I was like, no, those are the football fans. Those, you know, <laughs> nothing to do with the, you know, the sort of beautifully dressed mods who were falling out of the rainbow and into this hail of bottles and fists. Um, but anyway, so, I mean, um, it, it, that wasn't really what it was about. It was about the music for me. It was really, it was just the music. It was the music. I suppose there was a kind of sense of belonging. And I think probably more than anything right from the start, it was the lyrics. But I was hooked. I did see them then in 1980. I probably saw them later in 1980 on Setting Suns Tour, Two Nights Running. You know, used to, we used to go. I know the friends of mine that would follow them around, sort of bunk off from school. And you know, where were you last night? I were up in Manchester. You know, what? You know, then we went across to Bridlington and then we went, you know. But I would see, I would try and 
I've still got ticket stuff somewhere. And it is amazing when you look and it was like two pounds. Yeah. You know? But actually it was probably a lot of money. You know, I had to save up some pocket money to go. But I would do that, go and see them two nights running. And then actually saw them uh, two, two nights running at the Michael Sobel Sports Center, which was at the end of 1981, I think, when they were previewing the gift. And the gift hadn't come out then. And something had changed. I remember it was it was just amazing. I mean, that was just incredible gigs as well. The sound had changed and there was a real soul thing. And I remember they did um, Give Me Just a Little More Time, Chairman of the Board song. And they did, I can't remember, some soul covers. You know, Ghosts was previewed that night. And it was like, wow, what's that? You know, and they came on all night, every, there were four gigs in that series and they were CND benefit gigs. I saw them two nights at the Sobel Centre and friends of mine saw them at the Hammersmith Palais. And they came on every night with The Gift. And it was just, you know, that bang. It's quite hard to describe it, really, because it's such a visceral thing. Yeah. You know, it was so visceral and it's sort of bound up in my sort of distant memory, but it's lodged very firmly there. You mentioned the love of lyrics and, and falling in love with the music in these songs as well as the live experience. And there was something very special about the three of them together. And you also mentioned like the evolution of that band from where they came yeah. to, to what you were hearing then, you know, years later. But a really quick evolution. We're only talking about a lifespan of the band for like five years, aren't we? That's amazing, isn't it? When you think now, <laughs> people say, I don't know, there's another, oh, you know, Coldplay are releasing another album, you know, first one in five years or something. You know, Jam used to release an album every year. You know, and then singles that weren't even on the albums. And a lot of bands did that. But I think you heard the evolution. And I think with Paul, a lot of it goes back to the Beatles, obviously. And you think about the evolution of the Beatles and those leaps, those seismic artistic leaps every time, you know, that you go from, you know, Rubber Soul and into Revolver, into you know, Sgt. Peppers. And, and every time there's a different sound, there's a different approach, there's a thematic change, you know, the look of the band changes. And I think that was a really big thing with Paul. And I think that's what's made him just so relevant to this day, you know, because he has never really, you know, I think he's embraced his past a, f a lot more in recent years and come to terms with it. But there has been that sort of constant quest to do something new every time. And you saw that within the, the jam. And it's amazing, you know, that leap from, well, first of all, from This Is The Modern World to All Mod Cons. But I heard all those records all at the same time. So I sort of really began f with Setting Sun. Well, sort of, you know, hearing Strange Town and into When You're Young. But Setting Suns was, I don't know, it was just totally different to anything I'd heard at that time. You know, it, the complexity of it. I've talked to Paul about this, really. And lyrically, it's so dense. The character studies... You know, he started off with this idea of a concept album. It didn't really fulfill that aim, but there was this sort of loose idea of a journey of, you know, letting go of your past. And he framed it within this notional, I don't know, civil war and these three mates who were thrown together and then went their separate ways. And I think at the heart, there was the sense of him being very different to a lot of his mates and making a leap from where he came to where he was heading to. And he knew he was, he was having to change all the time and let go of the past. And I think you, you hear that, but I think in thick as thieves in particular, I think, you know, the density, the complexity and the poetry of that lyric in particular is still astonishing to me. You know, and you think that he was what at the time he would have been 20, 21, maybe, but I think probably, probably 21 when it came out, but when he was, you know, 20, 21 when he wrote it. And I remember, um, years ago making a program for Radio 4 about English pop lyricists and sort of drawing a line from Ray Davis through Paul, 
Damon Albarn, Alex Turner, you know, there was a sort of the idea really of that kind of the sort of quintessential, you know, it's sort of often called the quintessential English lyric and very much it's about suburbia. You know, it's about uh, character studies, vignettes, small town dramas, all of those sort of things which speak to a bigger truth about the world. And I remember talking to Simon Armitage, the, who's now, of course, the poet laureate and phoning Simon up and just saying, look, would you, would you talk about this? And, um, and he was saying, yeah, no, I said, I get that totally. I get that totally. And I started saying, look, and I remember quoting Thick as Thieves, you know, and I said, I still think about, you know, we stole the burning sun in the open sky, the twinkling sun. And he just, and he just carried that on the line. Twinkling stars in the black night, we stole the green belt fields that made us believe we stole everything that we can see. Something came along and changed our minds. I don't know what and I don't know why, but we, oh Christ, now I've forgotten it. But you know, it's <laughs> that thing, it's hardwired in and yeah. it was hardwired into him as well. And we both went, oh my God, wow, how, how, where does that come from? You know, where does that spring from in a kid who's 20 years old, who, you know, by his own admission is not academic, wasn't academic at school, enjoyed English, but, you know, not a lot else. Obviously didn't grow up at home with a library and a tutor. So he just had a way with words. And it's astonishing, you know, it's really astonishing. And there's so many lyrics from that album. And that was really the sort of gateway setting suns, the gateway for me. And I think there's so many lyrics on that album. Private Hell is just amazing. And oh yeah. I was talking to Hannah Peel about Private Hell because obviously they, they reversioned it with the orchestra for the um the recent yeah. concerts. And that song is I mean, the lyrics on that song are it's so bleak, isn't it? But <laughs> it, it sounds so great. It's such a great it's, it's funny, isn't it? Because I, t- I mean, I talked to Paul about that for a, a, a different program. I can't remember what, which program we were talking about, but he said about resetting it for that True Meanings live show at the Royal Festival Hall with Hannah leading in the orchestra. You know, he felt quite uncomfortable about that lyric because it is so bleak and it's got such a cynical, but it's just amazing couplets in it, you know. And again, it's the attention to detail and it's how he knew, how, how he knew, what, what, how, where did that come from? That woman with the sadness and the sort of, you know, floating down the high street in the Valium Haze and, you know, the kids aren't writing letters to, you know, because they've gone off and they don't mm. need her anymore. And she's lonely and the, you know, husband just doesn't care. And, projecting himself into a world that was so different to the life he was living. And that's, you know, that is astonishing. And yet I can, well, I was quite surprised in a way that Paul said he felt very uncomfortable singing it because he wouldn't be, he wouldn't, yeah, he said he wouldn't be that harsh now, wouldn't he? That's, I remember hearing that. That was on the podcast, these three songs. And was it, it was on that. It was yeah. on these three. Yeah, and yeah. yeah he said he, he felt kind of uncomfortable listening because it was so harsh. It was so kind of... It was, was that's right. Yeah. yeah. But it is amazing. And I just think... Um, I mean, we did at school. I mean, I, I just remember taking in... I think it was Wasteland, I remember. I think in an English class, we were asked to bring in a poem. And I brought in Wasteland. And then I was told by the teacher that didn't count because it was... <laughs> You were just cheating. That's not a poem. <laughs> and I just said, no, it is a poem. And I think a lot of his songs were written as poems. You know, I'm not sure if that one was. I suspect it was because there was a bit more of a free form uh, structure to it. I mean, just beautiful imagery. I just think that idea, again, very, very bleak lyric, you know, when and if, uh, oh, God. I mean, actually, I can, and the sort of images of songs that kind of are there in my imagination the whole time. That's the weird thing about a lot of those lyrics, that they, they lodge their way in. And I sometimes sort of see them. 
rather than remember them as lines. Yeah. You know, they were like film. They were like little films. That's the interesting thing now, thinking about it. You've really got me thinking about this, Dan. I haven't, <laughs> you know, I, honestly, it's, um, God, that's really interesting. And of course, a lot of it is to do with the fact that you didn't have the visualization. Now, of course, even on Spotify, you know, sometimes you're listening on Spotify, you get a little kind of imagery mm. moving or you get the lyrics and, you know, every song that's released has got a film going with it and everything has to be visualized. But of course, then, apart from the singles, which in the late 70s, of course, you know, videos were, were just getting up and running. But I think most of the songs, most of the songs that I loved, which probably were the album tracks, you had to create your own films in your head, you know, and there's film, you know, certainly sort of images, scenes that I would probably, you know, I could easily direct in my head based on the lyrics of those songs, you know, particularly on the Setting Suns album, you know. Well, even songs like um, you know, Tube Station and, and stuff like that, you can... Well, Tube Station was, was like, you know, he wrote that, as I think he said to me in... I've got a copy of it here, as you can see. I dug it off the shelf. I had the huge privilege and pleasure of editing this anthology of lyrics, Suburban 100. Have you got this? Have you got I a have, copy of I this? have. It's a beautiful book. Oh, you do? Yeah. All right, yeah. It's and, a, it um, is a lovely thing. This is the original run of them. And that was 2007, I think I'm writing the saying. Um, so Texas it? takes us past heliocentric and illumination and pre-22 dreams. We did update it, actually. How yeah. did that project come about? How did that? How did you get involved in that? Paul asked me. We had done... I mean, I think he knew I was a fan and I'd done some interviews with him. I'd done a big interview with him years before for a Radio 4 program, which was just a one-on-one -on -one interview when Stanley Road came out. It was just before Stanley Road. And I persuaded him to come into the studio and he played some songs acoustically. You know, I was in the studio when he played You Do Something To Me for the first time, you know, wow. and he said, this is a new song. Wow. This is, this is a new song. I've just written this. Oh, yeah, go on then. Play, play that. And I remember just going, my God, <laughs> my God, that's... <laughs> um, so that was kind of years before. And then I'd done interviews, you know, several interviews with him. I don't know. I, I guess I'd sort of got to know him and used to see him at shows and, you know, not very well. But he then heard, I think it was actually off the back of that program I was just telling you about, that English mm. pop lyric uh, program, which was an edition of Front Row on Radio 4. Uh, so it had Paul was in it, Damon was in it, Ray Davis was in it, and Simon Armitage and a couple of other people as well. And I sent Paul a copy and... I think he got the idea of, you know, that I was sort of looking at him in a sort of literary way. And we were talking very much about the sort of literary nature of the lyrics. And he phoned me up and he just said, Look, I've been asked to do a book by Random House Publishing Company. And they have said, I can do anything. And, or, you know, they wanted him to write a memoir or they wanted to write something or whatever, you know. And he said, no, I'll do a, a book of, po of poems, of lyrics, you know, but I want it like a poetry book, like an anthology, no pictures, nothing else, but I need help putting it together. And will you edit it? <laughs> I went, well, I'll have a think about it. <laughs> um, so it was, yeah, it was just, a, it was a huge privilege. It was, uh, so we picked, well, a hundred. I mean, it was like, I think that's why we called it Suburban 100. Look at that. I didn't even realise that was in there. I've just opened the front thing and there's a little um, note from Paul. Oh, brilliant. Saying, look, possible titles. He'd obviously sent this to me. Read it out for me, sir. For the sake of your listeners, I'm holding up to the camera so Dan can see. Look, there's, it says, post titles. 
Suburban 100, the Great Wait. Suburban 100, <laughs> the Suburban 100. Does it matter if 100 is the exact number? So we thought, he li- I don't know, he just liked the idea of suburbia and 100 songs. So we decided we'd set, you know, that was the parameter. It was like, let's pick 100. And we were both agreed. And I was sort of, I just said, look, it's not about the greatest hits and it's not about necessarily the ones that, all the ones that people know. Let's go for songs that read on the page, that stand up as poetry, or not even as poetry, but as lyrics that you can read and enjoy on the page. Mm-hmm. We spent, several evenings around his kitchen table just and i just sort of i printed out all the lyrics you know the hundreds there are you know at the time there was even then there was i don't know i think we had about three or four hundred lyrics and sort of going through and just writing notes for them so i would talk to him and he would sort of dictate to me he would say his thoughts about them and i would write down what he was saying and then i would sort of suggest maybe something and so so, and each of the lyrics on the book comes with a little annotation just short notes you know some of them are longer than others but you know most of them are just sort of short observations or memories about where he was when he wrote them or what they're about and um paul was still drinking then so my my memory of those sessions in 2007 (laughs) is that i would arrive around with a couple of bottles of red wine and then you know three hours later we'd have a few lyrics done so no that was that was quite a wow what an experience yeah yeah it was it was lovely and i just i think it's a beautiful book i think it's a really beautiful book and the cover was designed by peter blake so it's sort of an image of paul but faceless the facial features are not there they're sort of you know in a very blank sort of way i don't know i'm not really sure what, why that is but the image behind is of the co the cooperative store it's an old image of a, of a co-op from the 60s that peter blake happened to get because he thought it worked but of course there's a reference to the co-op in a town called Malice. And Paul liked that. You know, I think Peter had suggested a few different covers and this was one. And it was like, well, that chimes, you know, there's a little subliminal reference to a lyric there. And as a designer, we worked with a designer called Suzanne Dean, who is the best book designer in the business. And she has, I mean, famously, she did Sense of an Ending, the Julian Barnes novel, which won the Booker Prize. And Julian Barnes got up that night at the Guildhall when he won the Booker and and dedicated his win to Suzanne Dean, the best book designer in the business. And, you know, he he had that right because she she designed this for us. And it's just a beautiful, it's a lovely thing. It was a very um, limited run, the hardback. I know it's available in paperback, but yeah. And how did Paul feel looking back? Because you mentioned earlier on, he doesn't tend to do that too much. He's not somebody who reminisces an awful lot from what I can understand anyway. He's not a sentimental person in that way was it a good experience looking back at those old lyrics or was he, yeah, was he, criti- he critiquing himself obviously yeah and i think he was he was very definite that he didn't want any we didn't have anything i think the earliest lyric is tube station and i was arguing for there were a couple from i mean you know we could have had in the city and actually thinking back you know you show it shows the full development and actually if i'd done it with him again now and if i was a bit bolder as an editor i would have said no you've got to have in the city there mm. because that's you at 17 years old projecting yourself and and it's the aspiration and all of that idea and actually some of those lyrics on the first album they may have been a bit crude and naive they tell a story as well and there's that line I know I come from Woking and you'll say I'm a fraud, but my heart is in the city where it belongs. You know, he didn't want it. And he just, he just thought the, the lyrics and Paul was very definite about the lyrics that worked on the page that you could read and that would sort of stand up and would have a sort of strength that would look good and that you could enjoy as works to be read that you didn't necessarily have to have the association with the music or the time or, you know, that punk thing or where he was at the time. Do they just stand up on the page? And I think we started with Tube Station 
No, he wasn't reluctant to look back in that way. He, I think he fully embraced. And I think in a way it may have prompted him to reassess some of those areas. He certainly put Thick as Thieves back into the live set because I argued so strongly about that lyric. And I just said, look, that is above and beyond the usual standard for a a pop lyric. Yeah. You know, the complexity and the narrative and the whole scenario being played out. It's just, it's such a beautiful lyric. And, um, he stuck it back in the live set, which was um, nice. You know, Good result. Well, thank, well, thank you for that, John. Thank you. <laughs> we owe you one for that, I have to say. Um, I'm going to take you back to 1982. How did you feel when the band split and what were your feelings? Initially, you loved the Style Council, from my understanding, and Cafe mm. Blur. But I mean, you talk about Evolution. My God, that album couldn't sound any, any further removed from the Jammers material, could it? But how did you feel when they called it a day or when Paul called well, it a day? Well, I remember it vividly. I remember my mum coming because again you know there was no whisper on if you were probably plugged in to i I don't know you know the inner circle or you were one of the the really hardcore fans i mean i consider myself a hardcore fan but actually i've met people in the years since that were you know would follow them that would be in those sound checks you know i was probably too young for that but i remember my mum coming in with a paper you know i think it was the daily mirror and it just said jam split and it was like, what? You know? And then I used to get the enemy as well. And of course it was in the enemy, I think the same day. So I think they'd, they'd probably seen the enemy early edition and then, you know, turn around the front page. And I think it was on the front page or the inside page of the mirror. And it was, I, I was really shocked. You know, I was shocked and I, you know, I can't remember what I felt probably resigned to it. And, but what I do remember very vividly are the, the final gigs at Wembley. I wasn't at the last, the final gig at Brighton center, but I, Saw them for three nights running at Wembley Arena. <laughs> <laughs> With a seer in your eye? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Um, yeah. But actually, they were quite joyous, those gigs, if I remember. They sounded different. I remember the first night that I saw them, they came on early. They would always come on at nine o'clock, the jam. You know, it was a sort of <laughs> you know, nine o'clock, the bang, they would be on. And I remember being caught out and we were in the bar or, you know, was in Wembley Arena, great big cavernous place, and suddenly hearing this very echoey, big booming sound of start. They came on and played start. And it was like, what? They're on. And it was sort of half past eight. (laughs) And obviously they were going to do a long show. And, you know, it was like a two hour show or something. But I remember at the time thinking, they sound different. They sounded different. Partly, this is a very muso observation. You can see on my Zoom screen down in the background yeah. i've got a bass guitar there so i played i started playing bass when i was a kid and there was something wrong as soon as i walked in i realized that bruce wasn't playing a precision a fender precision he was playing this thing which i later realized was an aria pro or something which has got a sort of a, a it hasn't got that depth it hasn't got that grunt and that distinctive thing which drove so much of the jam and it was of it was a more, you know, in a weird way, more of a refined sound. And that's clearly what they were trying to get. And it was sparser and they had the horns and they had the backing singers and it was moving, you know, now in retrospect, you can see it was moving towards where he then headed to. It was the stepping stone, musical stepping stone. But I just thought those shows were really joyous. I just thought they were amazed. They were like celebrations of everything, you know, so that they would go from doing, you know, quite complex versions of in the crowd, you know, to, you know, really punky version of in the city. And, but it was, they were fast and and lean and it, it felt great. It felt really good. And I saw them three nights running and the final night I got, I don't know if you know, my, my dad used to play football. Yes, I do. 
bit of a goalie, <laughs> to say the least. But my yeah. dad was a goal. My dad was bloody, a goal bloody brilliant goalkeeper, though, right? <laughs> and so he he um, was then he was a television presenter, and he was presenting grandstand of football focus and stuff. But he had the week before he had played five aside football in a tournament. You know, he was still playing and doing all sorts of things like that. But he was playing in a five aside tournament at Wembley Arena, and he had an all access pass. And I took this pass with me on the final night of the Wembley show. There were five shows at Wembley and I saw three of them. I saw two, two nights running and then I saw the last night. And the last night I went with this pass and I'd scratched out because it was, there was a sort of the date and I'd scratched it out with a pin and written in the date over the top. And I did, I thought this is never going to work. And I didn't want to risk it, you know, and then getting thrown out. So I waited until the encores and I left. I was there with a couple of friends and I went down and I thought I'd have no idea how to get backstage. And I remember going down the sort of side of the arena and then down and I asked some commissioner. And then Wembley Arena had these commissioners that would have uniforms and they'd have epaulettes and shiny brass buttons and kind of peak caps. And they were all like, you know, they looked like sort of Chelsea pensioners standing there at the door. And I was like, excuse me, you know, uh, I need to get backstage. And, oh, yes, you know, and flash this pass. Oh, yeah, down there. And I was okay. So I, oh through my this door. God, I go through this door, go through these, you know, and I said to somebody else, I need the backstage, you know, so, oh, through that door there. And I opened this door and I was standing by the side of the stage and I went, oh my God. And there was this, you know, huge, huge, hairy minder guy standing by the stage with a torch who I years later realized was Kenny. We used to see, you know, the roadies, the jam roadies, jam roadies never looked like anything like jam fans or the jam themselves, you know, they're like from a different era, huge and uh, hairy. And, you know, I think it was big. Kenny was standing there and I flashed this pass. And I remember him looking at me very quizzic, like, that's not right. That's not, that's not one of our passes, but he knew I was chancing and he just went, whatever, just stand there. And then they came running past and well, they didn't come running past. They came out and they stood next to me and I was so, I, I just, I just thought this, this is just the maddest thing ever. They were standing there waiting for the kind of signal to go back on. Cause the lights were going to be in. They're going to go back on and do the first encore. And they piled and they were standing there next to me. And I just, patted them all on the back. Like I sort of, I was just like, good luck boys, go, go, you know? And I said, just what are you doing? You know, you shouldn't be here. And they went back on and did, uh, I think they did in the city and finished off with, I think the gift. That's brilliant. And I stood there and I, um, I tell you the other thing I remember, big country, remember big country supported them. Stuart Adamson, who was the guitarist in the skids had formed big country and he had really, you know, he died later, really sadly. And Big Country was supporting them. And he was standing by the stage with me watching. And I got talking to him. I thought, if I talk to Stuart Adamson, then they're not going to throw me out. I'm sort of clinging on to him and trying to make conversation with him. And then we went up the steps, you know, because we're down sort of by the side of the stage. And we went up and we stood on the side of the stage. And so I watched the last three songs I ever saw by the jam. I was standing on the stage. And it's, you know, it's just, it's like a dream now. It's almost like it didn't happen. I sometimes wonder if it did happen, <laughs> but no, I kind of, I know it did happen. And it was, it was an amazing, amazing thing. Brilliant. That is brilliant. Yeah. And I was just also aware, actually, um, looking out because I could see out. I'd never had that perspective on a gig before looking out, you know, I'd always looked into the stage and I was looking out and I suddenly saw the enormity of it and how huge and what a massive wall of people and the noise. And, but I was aware of people my age and older mostly boys, you know, young men crying when the lights came up 
you know, and I stood there looking out. I remember seeing people wiping tears away and just thinking, wow, this is huge, you know. So, yeah, it was big, wasn't it? It was. Um... <laughs> That's a brilliant story. This, I'm guessing Paul doesn't know that. <laughs> I don't know, actually. I think I'm. Oh, God, maybe, know, I probably... maybe over one of those glasses of red wine. But I, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> probably. Yeah, um, yeah. And I, I saw something on Twitter about when you first met. It was Paul Weller's birthday, his 25th, 25th May, May 1983. Yeah. And we went to the Paris Theatre. It was the first style council show. I think they may have done something. Did they do something in Brockwell Park, a C and D thing? I can't. I can't remember which the the official first gig was, but it was their sort of first broadcast, and it was a Radio One in concert, and it was in the Paris Theatre, and we got tickets and. I don't know how we managed to blag backstage again. I had a, I had a dodgy pass. pass. It was a different pass. And I was there with, uh, with a couple of people. I was with, with my sister, my friend Richard Hawes and his girlfriend, Minnie. And we went back and yeah, we got introduced to Paul and we stood there chatting for about 20 minutes. And it was his, it was his 25th birthday. When I think about that now, my God, you know, my son is older than, you know, my son's 26. And I just think he had just split up the biggest band in Britain, you know, and I had his poster all around my wall and he was only 25. He was 24, you know, 20, 24 when he split up the jam, 25 that day when we, when I first met him. Brilliant. Astonishing. And, and it's a lovely tweet because you talk about the fact there's no excuse for my hair or jumper. I think it was the, it's the phrase. Which I had big hair, off. didn't I? A big, big, uh, it was like, do you know what it was? It was, I was trying to be a soul boy then. Uh, I had a, a like a Pringle, you know, you had to have a Pringle sweater. It was a sort of football casual look. Um, luckily, you don't see the rest of, you know, I had, uh, you know, sort of Farrah slacks and burgundy slip on loafers. And I tried to, you know, I was trying to grow a soul boy wedge, but I had curly hair. My hair was naturally curly. So it just looked kind of ridiculous. It was more sort of flock of seagulls. Yeah. I share your pain. I, I spent a lot of time um, being chemically straightened for hours on end to try and get that well and look. And it, ne- it never worked. It was, it was an absolute car crash. Um, there's a few interviews I'd love to touch on if, if that's all right. And I know we're um, we're a bit short on time, but I hope you can kind of stick with me for a bit. Um, Sorry, I've been babbling away. No, no, no. This is amazing, honestly. So, you know what? Actually, it's weird, Dan, because I spend so much of my life talking to other people and thinking, you know, get to the point. You know, and I've just been rambling like a, you know, guilty schoolboy. Oh, no. yeah, exactly. I want to talk to you about 2012 Master Tapes because um, I mentioned about Paul not necessarily wanting to look back, but there's this wonderful A and B side where you're a maid of veil, you're talking to Paul about, and the A side is the gift. So that final jam album and the B side is the audience. And this has already come up on the podcast because Daniel Ash, otherwise known as the musician Teenage Waitress, was one of the people who asked the questions. And he's been one of my guests on the podcast. So um, he has lovely memories of that session, that interview. But was he the kid that, that played? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, that yeah. was amazing. Yeah, yeah, he was in the audience and he's asked a question about writer's block, I think. Do you know what? I don't, is, is he in the pod, in the master tapes? Yeah. Uh, yes, he is. I found him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He is, I, he is I, there. I okay. Him, yeah. But his song isn't because no, I remember, right. I remember Daniel said, so I think his question was, have, do you ever have writer's block and how do you deal with it? And Paul talks about how you, you know, work through it and you've just got to really sort of relax and you just, you know, you've got to trust yourself and the words will come at some point and the yep. news will return. And then later on, I said, uh, you know, he was playing, Paul was playing and I said, let's have another song. And he said, no, let's get, I want to hear his song. And Daniel was sitting in the audience and he pulled him out and Paul handed him his Gibson J45 guitar and said, go on, play me one of your songs. And Daniel, to his credit, who I think was only 18, at, and I mean, you may know better. I remember that him being very probably about right. Yeah, yeah. That Is that right? right? I think he yeah. was about 18, sat there on the stage in front of the Master Tapes audience and played one of his songs. 
and it was great. And Paul and I sat on, on the on the stage, you know, not on our chair. We just sat on the edge of the stage watching him. And I just thought that's a lovely moment. And I just think it says a lot about Paul Weller. You know, it's that thing goes back to those early days of the Style Council and the jam. You know, the Sobel gigs that I was talking about. When I think back to those, that was like he he sort of built it as like a, his version of Stax Review Show. So I remember, you know, he turned up and there was a local band supporting the jam on every leg of a gig. There would always be a local band. And then I remember Bananarama came on. Nobody knew who Bananarama were. Uh, and they got sort of booed and bottled off. Then there was a <laughs> funk band. I can't remember what they were called. Pete Perfides would know. I should ask Pete. They were one of those sort of, you know, funk bands of the early 80s, British funk bands. And then Department S. He was like that, of course, when he set up Respond. And it was about encouraging the next generation. And I thought it was a similar sort of thing, that it was his moment. It was his program. We were focusing on the jam. And in the spirit, I guess, of reaching back to who he was at that time. And he'd set up his publishing company, Paul, at that time, hadn't he? Riot Stories, encouraging young writers. And I think it was just... It was the same sort of thing. No, come on. Let's hear what the kid has to say. Let's hear his song. It was a lovely moment. Yeah. And I think, um, and Paul continues to do that, doesn't he? Recommend new artists, work with new artists. Um, oh, totally. Every, yeah. every interview you read, he's kind of talking about something he's been digging and some and, and supporting. And, and then that I helps get, I get text. Sort of I get something, yeah. get text out of the blue saying, have you heard this? Or, have oh, you're you one of those. Check this out. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, no, him? he's just, he needs to kind of, you know, and also I will do the same thing, you know, you know, whatever it is, you know, something recently that would have really struck me that I thought, oh, he'll like like this and you know and uh, i like that thing he's so enthusiastic he just loves music and he loves discovering new sounds very often that reach back that probably possibly have an echo from the past but um you know he's always always wanted to discover something new because mm. he wants that to feed into his own music and we talked earlier about like every album sounding different and um I, what i've loved in recent years is the access you've had to paul there's the true meanings documentary where you're walking around ripley talking about it there's the three songs podcast that um you're at black barn and you're seeing his old bashed up guitar oh, um, that was it, great yeah, yeah so tell me tell me about the time that you spent with paul in recent years and those experiences i'm lucky enough to have spent a bit of time at black barn over the years, really from around the time when we were doing Suburban 100. And we went down, I went down with Suzanne Dean, the designer, and we heard 22 Dreams, the album, before he had finished it. And it was sort of before it was, it was, you know, it was sort of more or less there in order. And it was just, and I'd heard some demo, he'd played me some demos at home, but I went down to the barn. I think that was probably the first time I'd been down there. You know, I'm sort of almost reluctant to say this because it just sounds like showing off, but I kind of have heard all of the albums that he's made since then as he's finished them, you know, as he's sort of wrapping them up or just finished them and wanting to play them. And, you know, and he, he does that with, with a lot of people, you know, he wants, you know, he wants a response. Um, and he wants to share it. I've been lucky enough to have been in the studio sometimes when he's recording, which is a, which is a really amazing thing to watch as well. Cause he is so focused, you know, as a musician, uh, as an arranger, you know, you think of him as a, you know, he's a great lyricist. He, he's a great singer, but I think it's his arrangements and it's his sense of production as well. He, he works with Stan Yankai, but Stan and Charles Reese and. There's such a team there at the barn, but I'm always aware when I'm there that Paul is directing operations, you know, and even if it's just a suggestion, but hearing him record, for instance, the vocal, I was there when he was recording the vocal for No Tears to Cry oh, uh, wow. on Wake uh, Up the Nation. Yeah. 
Um, and that was, you know, it was late and I'd gone down there to hear some tracks, um, because that was coming together and he works late and we'd gone off for a curry as often happens down there in Ripley and then come back and he wants to do some more of his vocal. And there's a bridge section, there's a middle eight section. He was sort of nailing that section and laying a couple of harmonies on. And that was just amazing to see, you know, the sense of, you know, he knew he could hear it. He could hear the sound that he was trying to create. And, um, yeah, it was a real privilege to see him work like that. He's a very, very serious musician. Um, I remember watching the True Meanings documentary and you talking, him talking about Gravity, which is some, a song that's come up on the podcast quite a lot, along with aspects from that True Meanings album, because which he previewed on Master Tapes, by the way. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And it was just, it was a work in progress, that. wasn't it? It was, it was, it was that yeah. was a work in progress. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But you know what? That's really interesting. You think about that's three examples of, you know, I was there when, you know, he, he played You Do Something to Me years ago in the studio. So oh, here's a new song. I'll just try this one. You know, he played Gravity on Radio 4 for Master Tapes before it was sort of more or less finished, you know, but he hadn't recorded it and he was putting it out there. And more recently on the three songs podcast, these three, you'll remember the conceit of the podcast was a work I made, a work I wish I'd made and the thing I'm making. And he played Failed of yes. Fat Pop. So that was obviously when he was, God, when did we do that? So that was, was it before On Sunset? So he'd obviously had, no, I think it was during the On Sunset session. So he'd obviously written it during then and he played it to me and allowed it to go out. He hadn't finished the structure. He hadn't finished the lyrics and he's not precious like that. When we did master tapes and he was trying to talk about the gift and the way it was recorded and he played a version of just who is a five o'clock hero. And he was trying to remember the chords and he had been working it out in the days before. And we'd been chatting on the phone about which songs he might be able to play, you know, because he hadn't played any of those songs. He hadn't played yeah. any of them apart from Town Called Malice, which I think had just come back into the set around that time. But he hadn't played any of the other songs. And he tried to work out just who's the five o'clock hero, which it turns out has got the most ludicrously complex chord structure. <laughs> you know, the amount of chords in that song <laughs> and the amount of lyrics, you know, and he tried to play it and he did it twice and just you know the song fell apart twice and the audience were laughing and in the edit um, my producer Paul Kobrak came to it and he phoned me up and he just went no, Joe, what are we going to do about that bit and I said well well, you keep it in there he said well you can't keep it he just it's you know he, he's getting it all wrong you know the audience are laughing and he's like I just went I, I don't think you know and I phoned Paul I said look we've got this thing you know when you're doing this is just who is the five o'clock hero you got it wrong do you mind that being in and he went, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, getting it wrong. Look, he went, well, that's the whole point, isn't it? You know, it's so complex. It was such a long time ago. So I don't, and I just thought that's fantastic. Yeah. The artistic process, laying it there again, not being precious about there's a lot of artists, you know, who would have a team of advisors who would be, you know, telling which version of the song you can play and would have veto and all sorts of deals done. That's not to say that Paul doesn't have really quality control standards, you know, you know, his, his standards are really, really high, but I think he's also aware that the artistic process is something which is really fascinating to a lot of people and you have to chip away, you know, and it's a struggle. And actually looking back at that song, as he said at the time, that's a young man's, you know, those are young man's chords. <laughs> <laughs> but that complexity at such a young age, like you say, as well, is really interesting. But, Amazing, uh, but yeah. yeah, you're right because gravity. And uh, in your in your podcast, he was talking about. Gra oh, sorry, in the True Meanings documentary, he was talking about gravity, having been around for a while, and him needing to create an album around it in the end. And 
yeah, you're yeah. right. The first time we heard Gravity was on your show, which would have been five years before. So yeah, that's a really great connection. Um, it seemed then he was really reflective. Out of any moments I've heard him talking in interviews, it seemed like at that moment when he was 60, he was prepared to look back. He was prepared to mm-hmm. reflect. And you hear that through the lyrics, some of which he's not written, others have written um, with him or for him. But um, there's a lovely bit in that documentary where he says about as well in the, in the last few years, he's learned how to sing properly, <laughs> which I thought was fascinating too. But again, you know, that's Paul being self-deprecating. He's always had a great voice that suits different styles. I know I go back to Thick as Thieves and Setting Suns and uh, sound effects a lot because it's where I came in. And But his voice at that time was astonishing. Technically, strangely, given that, you know, he's a young man at the time, it's not technically as good as the way he can sing now, but it's just got a character and it's got a depth. You know, it always amazed me that he was so young and he had that kind of, he seemed old before his years. You know, I could never work. He always seemed, when we were kids, he seemed like a sort of, not just like a big brother, but he just seemed older and wiser. And, you know, he had this sort of depth and authority, but a lot of that was in the voice. But I think technically, yeah, he's probably tuning his voice better. He's using it in a different way. I think he's using it more as an instrument. I think you've really sort of heard that from 22 Dreams onwards increasingly. Uh, And in true meanings, taking the volume down, not just in the studio with the settings of those songs, which are beautifully arranged. I mean, they're just, I do love that album, but seeing him on stage at those Royal Festival Hall gigs, and I was there in the sound check. I mean, it was one we actually had, it was, I was at the sound check for those on the first night. There was quite a big debate about the volume because sitting out in the hall, I'd never heard him so quiet. You know, and there was a thing that was sort of like, is it loud enough? And it was partly about the levels because it was so much about the acoustic and and controlling the feedback. You know, it's different to plugging in and having that sort of big electric sound. Hearing just the nuance of the the acoustic sound, you know, and the orchestra, because Hannah Peel was there with the, well, it wasn't a full orchestra, but it was a large ensemble of string musicians and horn players. But it was just about keeping everything and keeping the space and I remember Paul was really insistent. He was saying, I want everybody to play as quietly as possible. And that's not something you associate with Paul Weller, mm. who in the past, you know, has been, some of the gigs have been the loudest gigs I've heard. You know, sometimes I think he's been too loud. But I mean, it was really interesting. And it's about control. And it allowed his voice, I think, for him to express himself and express the tone and the, tam- is the timbre of the voice as well. You know, that readiness and that, you know, people always talk about the, you know, the cello as an instrument is the closest to the human voice. I think there's a sort of cello-like aspect to Paul's voice. And you hear it on a lot of those songs on True Meanings. Uh, Wishing Well, I think, is something Mm. that is just a great lyric. And White Horses in particular, which I know he wrote with Erland, you know, the lovely yeah. Erlen Cooper. Have you talked to Erlen for this podcast? I haven't yet because he's too busy burying his latest album, I think. Yeah, it's buried. <laughs> it's, it's buried. He's, he's just waiting for somebody to dig it up. But um, <laughs> it's interesting. There's so many people over, you know, I love the jam and I didn't even question. I never really have questioned why, you know, you sort of sometimes leave those teenage obsessions behind. You, you, you can see behind me. I've got records behind me. Yeah. And there's many records in there that I probably loved when I was 14, 15, 16, you know, which I haven't played for years and years, you know. Although having said that, I was in the gym the other day and I put the first Undertones record on only because a friend of mine had been running and had texted to say, my God, I just listened to the first Undertones album whilst running. And it was just brilliant. And I'd sort of put it to the test. And, you know, I usually put hip hop on if I'm in the gym. Um, but I put the first Undertones album on. And the amazing thing was I haven't heard that album for, you know, decades. And I remembered every word. It was just like, 
you know, yeah, yeah. those things are hardwired. Whereas the jam, I've, I've not that I play them all the time, but they've never been far away. And over the years, I realized that there are many people like Erland and talking to Erland recently in an interview I did for him, you know, talking about how he came across Paul or, you know, other, you know, people from all walks of life. People, you know, I remember, <laughs> again, this is, you know, slightly name dropping. This was years ago, sitting outside a, you know, a cafe in Portland Place at near the BBC uh, with Paul when we were just, you know, meeting and having a cup of tea and Robert Peston walked past and Robert stopped to say hello because I know Robert and he was a BBC political editor at the time. And he suddenly realised who I was talking to and I introduced him to Paul and Robert was just totally like a kid. He was like an absolute kid, you know. And Paul, you know, who obviously knew who, who, who he was, just went, oh yeah, we'll come and see the show, you know, just give us, a, give us a bell and we'll put you on the list. And, you know, it was just lovely to see. And you realise that actually there's a lot of people who have gone on to do really interesting things that, um, whose first love and who still revere, you know, the jam and what Paul did and the voice he offered and the sort of insight he offered to many people of, of my generation, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, with the jam in particular. Now we have yeah. to touch on front row. There's this amazing radio four program that you've been a part of for, well, for as long as I can remember, probably more than uh, you can remember as well. And we'll talk about this kind of startling news that you gave me just before we started recording this podcast. But there was a wonderful chat that you had with Paul, which actually was a small chat, but I imagine was a, a, a probably a whole day of loveliness where you took him on a tour of the jam exhibition with him and Nikki Weller at Somerset oh, yeah. house. Can you remember that? That was that yeah. just so, cause he hadn't seen it at all. And it was basically yeah. opening the doors and you, getting his reaction you chatting about it as he went through and like i say he's famously not a nostalgic person but what did what did he make of it all that was great wasn't it Do you know by by um total coincidence i was in somerset house last night <laughs> Funny. for a, for a, uh for an art exhibition in the same gallery iranian artist called shirin neshat and um but i was there that's, that's weird that you mentioned that because i was there last night and i was thinking about that show the jam exhibition that nikki put together with den davis who had had that astonishing built up over many many years the collection of not just memorabilia but i mean instruments and amps and everything and i just phoned paul and asked him if he would come down and and walk around it for front row you know be the only thing that he was going to do, the only interview about it. So he had no preconceptions. He didn't know what was in it. I think Nikki had told him, you know, they've got some really great stuff. But I remember we walked in and the first thing, you know, as many of your listeners will know who saw that show, you walk in and the first thing you saw was the stage set as it was for the final show at Brighton. So, you know, there's Rick's white kit and Paul's, you know, Rickenbacker propped against his stack of Marshall amps. And that bass that I was talking about earlier that Bruce had started playing. And the first thing Paul did was he walked in, he just went, what's that? And I went, what's what? <laughs> he went, that's not, what's, what's that bass? And I just went, oh, that was the, and Nicky was going, that's Bruce's bass. He was going, no, it wasn't. He's never played that. And he was obviously totally forgotten. And it was a really interesting thing. And then he just went, whose gear is this? And Nicky was saying, well, it was all yours. He was going, well, who, who's, who owns it? You know? And it was really kind of sort of nonplussed. It was like, what? What is this? The actual gear? This is, this is actually the stuff we played. It wasn't sort of, they got some martial amps that yeah. looked a bit like the ones and they got a Rick, of, you know, no. And it, I think, I don't know, you'd have to ask Paul, but he was, um, you know, I think it was really interesting. He is reluctant, obviously, to look back and, you know, but because there's always so much more to do in the future. You know, there were some lovely moments like finding the comic strips that he used to write as a kid and his school reports. That was it. Cause Nikki or, you know, his mum, Anne had obviously kept all of his school reports and they were on show. And it was really interesting, actually, 
looking at those. And he took great pride in that they were okay. You know, we, you know, often think about, oh, Paul Weller, he left school with, you know, sort of no qualifications and hated it. It was, you know, academic failure. Actually, it's not true. You know, you look at the school reports, they're pretty good grades. And I remember at the time, I mean, you probably remember it better because I haven't heard it since we did it, but he, he said, look, look, good grades. Look, yeah, it was, okay. yeah, it was sort of like, you know, B's and C's and an A for English, you know, and it was English and art that were, and then of course there were those doodles and then that was, a, it was a great exhibition that, but it must've been strange, like falling down a rabbit hole for him. Yeah. Um, you know, and like you say, when he's thinking like, oh, are these replicas or this is just, but it's like, no, 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 this is the actual stuff. The, like, the, oh, act, the actual wow. stuff. Yeah. No, that was lovely to be able to do that. I mean, you know, I've, I've been very, very lucky that I've built a, a relationship with him where I can call on him to, to do things like that, you know, to do the podcasts. And, you know, he's been on front row a lot of times, mm. you know, probably, <laughs> probably been on front row more time. I mean, to the point actually where I think I had to fess up and I had to sort of say, look, I can't, I can't have you on front row anymore because people know we have a sort of relationship. Relationship and I've got to have a sort of journalistic distance from my guests. And I think he's been on front row almost as much as he's been on later with Jules Holland. That's how often. <laughs> <laughs> he probably, probably has. He probably has. As somebody who loves radio, it's always a pleasure listening to you on the radio. And I worked in the industry for, for a little while, but realized I was nowhere near as talented as I wanted to be in that space. But you've mastered the art of, of that program at Front Row, but something new is coming from you. Tell me about this new show that you're going to be doing. Yeah, I think I finally, like you say, I finally kind of got to, you know, can, can just about hold a radio program together. But, you know, <laughs> but, you know I've, I've, I've done front row for 20 years. By the time this goes out, I probably will have done my last edition. You know, I've done it for, I've done it for a long time and I've loved doing it. Um, but I have something new, which I want to explore. By the time we're on air with this, we may already be on air with a new program. And it's an interview show, me talking to a big cultural figure. Uh, every week on Radio 4, which is going to be a sort of podcast. It's for BBC Sounds, for BBC 4, BBC 4 as well. So we're going to visualize oh, cool. they, oh, right. they, they will be filmed and uh, for some of them still being negotiated. So um, watch this space. We may be up and running by the time this is out, but it's uh, no, it's a really exciting new project in which I will be leading big figures. Um, while we're talking, actually, my phone's been buzzing because there's a very, very big guest who we uh, have got for the first show. And uh, I've been slightly distracted during this conversation because I've seen the emails coming in. I have, I have, because we've been trying to to make sure we can get this this particular guest. Are you like this podcast where I've just got a list of all the people I want to talk to? Is it that kind of thing where you've got yeah, there's a, there's a list. Oh, of we've got there. we've got a list, and we've got we've got uh, you know confirmations of people who will do it, and there's some really really interesting names. You know, oh, wow. number one uh, who we are trying to nail at the moment, who who may you know already be on air by the time this goes out, is is somebody I have I've interviewed. A few times in the past who is just way up there at the top of the tree really wow okay Um, well exciting stuff exciting stuff and when does it go out when is the new show saturday i think we're on at 7 15 so it's the same slot as front row and it's called this cultural life a weekly show and podcast available on all good downloads look my phone's pinging again (laughs) right you have to go because you're a very busy man i have two final questions for you before you go you're allowed one paul weller song for the rest of your life it can be the jam the style council or paul weller solo which one's it going to be Oh my God. How, I mean, how, how do I choose that? Um, one way I've worked out how to do it yeah. is, is just to go, okay, well, straight after this interview or this conversation, which would be the one that you put on? Given that we were talking a lot about, you know, setting suns, I'd probably put Thick as Thieves on. And I think that is one that would sustain me. I always think about Desert Island, this, you know, which one yeah. would you take that actually sort of, um, I think something that just stands the test of time that just has such elegance and a sense of 
space and longing is Wildwood. You know, I just think Wildwood, you can't go wrong. Um, I'm not sure if it's my favorite. They probably, they change all the time. Yeah. You know, I, I, you know, I love On Sunset. I think that's a a great album. You know, I, I think the title track itself, again, I was so lucky to be in the studio with Hannah Peel and Paul when they were recording the strings for that and wow. more wow. Wow. and rockets in all. In fact, the th- three songs at the church studios in, in Crouch End, that was a couple of years ago. And I was there in the studio. In fact, there's a, there's a, there's a little film of the on sunset, you know, promo film. And you can see, I'm sort of there nodding along. Hannah told me that was like the hottest day ever. So hot. (laughs) It was was an August day. It was so hot. And yeah, they they recorded. So it was the first time I'd heard on sunset and rockets in particular, which was just astonishing. And, um, and I think they did more as well, but yeah, so I was very lucky to hear that. I I love the track on sunset. I think it's just fantastic. I don't know. Look, it's, it's impossible. (laughs) It's just impossible. It really is impossible. I think if it was a jam song, I would have to go with Sickest Thieves probably. Uh, if it's, you know, something from the solo album, I'd just, Wildwood, you can't go wrong. It's just an absolute classic. And Style Council, I don't know, you know, piano version of Ever Changing Moods. Oh, nice. Full it's... band version of Ever Changing Moods. <laughs> the long one, I, I the short know. one, the fast one, the slow one. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I don't know. You know, I tell you what I love. I love the, I love that very stripped down Parisian version of Paris Match. Where Paul sings in French. <laughs> I love the sound on that as well, you know, because it's it's the sound of freedom and it's the sound of taking chances and there's something very romantic about it. And, uh, you know, he's, people forget that. I mean, Paul Weller is an absolute romantic at heart. You hear that in so many of the songs. Yeah. So I think, you know, that's, that's something to take away with. Final question. Purpose of this podcast is not least to meet amazing people like yourself to talk about this man that music, whose music I love, but it's also as a radio presenter, I never got to interview Paul Weller. And um, mm. the purpose of this podcast is to make that dream come true. Having given up my radio career 10 years ago to be able to interview Paul Weller, if it happens, what should I talk to him about? What should I ask him? <laughs> Ask him about his next record. Ask him about what he's doing next. I mean, the the, the point is that, you know, as Paul will say, and I agree with this because I think about this in terms of my work, you know, interviews or programs I make, you know, I do think as a freelance, as somebody who, you know, is dependent on a reputation and doing things right, you really are only as good as your last work. And he's aware of that. And I think that's what's driven him on in the last few years, the fact that the quality has been so extraordinarily high. And so what he is doing undoubtedly at the moment is making another record. And what you should do is ask him about how that's going and what's shaping it, you know, what the influences are, who he wants to work with. The key to Paul Weller is looking forward and adopt that strategy, Dan, when you finally, when you finally, you know, what are you, is it, you know, come on, is, when's this going to happen? <laughs> Well, who knows? There's too many nice people like yourself that I want to talk to first. <laughs> I don't want to rush it, but then I don't want to miss an opportunity either. So who knows? We'll see. Yeah, no, yeah. Ask him about what next. That's the thing. What next? John, this yeah. has been, honestly, what an absolute pleasure to spend time in your company talking about the jam, the style counts and Paul Weller. Thank you so much. Good luck with the new show as well. And thanks so much for joining me, man. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure to be here. Well, there you go. I told you it was going to be good, didn't I? John Wilson, another amazing guest on the podcast. And don't forget to tune in Radio 4, Saturday nights, quarter past seven, This Cultural Life. You know, he was talking about the text he was getting during that chat. That was about Sir Paul McCartney, who is the next special guest on that show this coming Saturday night. Brilliant. 
You can find them all on the BBC website and BBC Sounds. Dig in. I'll also put loads of links in the show notes as well for some of the interviews that John's done with Paul over the years, the ones that we talked about. Now, don't forget, if you enjoyed this podcast, make sure you follow. Do leave a review. It does help us to find new listeners to the show. You can get in touch on Twitter at WellerFanPod or on Instagram and Facebook. It's Paul Weller Fan Podcast. And if you dig into the show notes, you can even buy me a coffee as well. Always greatly appreciated. I'll see you next time. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.